The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Lawfare intern Ajay Sarma with the podcast from the Lawfare Archives for August 15th, 2021. Last week, the Senate Homeland Security Committee advanced legislation that would create a task force on deepfakes and digital provenance in the Department of Homeland Security. The unanimous decision to do so represents one area of concern about the online space shared by both Democrats and Republicans. The task force would be charged with developing strategies for combating the spread of deepfakes and creating methods to authenticate the origins of online content. Though deepfakes have been a preoccupation of legislators for years, some have criticized the move as premature given that deepfakes are still a relatively underdeveloped technology. For today's episode from the archives, I went back to August 2018 when Klon Kitchen, Senior Fellow for Technology and National Security at the Heritage Foundation, moderated a panel on deepfakes and how to combat them with Bobby Chesney of the University of Texas at Austin Law School, Danielle Citron of the University of Maryland Carey School of Law, and Chris Bregler, a senior computer scientist and AI manager at Google. They discuss the confusing legal space where deepfakes are situated and how they can be combated most effectively, allowing for a better understanding of the right prophylactic measures that policymakers might be able to take. I'm Klein Kitchen, Senior Fellow for Technology and National Security at the Heritage Foundation, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 4th, 2018. Technologies that distort representations of reality, like audio, photo, and video editing software, are nothing new. But what happens when these technologies are paired with artificial intelligence to produce hyper-realistic media of things that never happened? This new phenomenon, called deep fakes, poses significant problems for lawyers, policymakers, and technologists. On July 19th, I led an event at the Heritage Foundation where I discussed this topic with Bobby Chesney of the University of Texas at Austin Law School, Danielle Citron of the University of Maryland Carey School of Law, and Chris Bregler, a senior computer scientist and AI manager at Google. We talked about how deepfakes work. We talked about why they don't fit into the current legal and policy thinking. And we talked about how policy, technology, and the law can begin to combat them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 335, Fighting deep fakes. So, Chris, I want I want to begin with you from a from okay. a pure technology standpoint to really help give us a little bit of context and the 
and to flesh this, this challenge out a little bit. So fake videos and altered media, that, that's been around for a while. There does seem to be, however, a perception that the challenge of deep fakes, that, that that's kind of coming into its own. I wonder if you could help us understand what technical advances, what, what are the drivers behind that reality? Okay, um, well, thanks for inviting me to this panel. It's nothing new to generate fake faces. Uh, it was in the hands of visual effects studios. Uh, it was very hard to do. You need armies of visual effects artists and very complicated systems. But what happened recently is several universities and other entities started publishing um, systems. Um, some of them are called puppeteering systems. That means you take lots of video of somebody and then you use machine learning to change the lips or change some other parts of the face and then it looks like that person said something different. Um, last year, there was an entire session at the computer graphics conference, and there was like a, uh, like a big leap forward how this works. Um, and then also, um, uh, you've heard about, well, deep fakes, what does that mean? Deep means deep learning or deep neural networks. So neural networks usually, they're also old, as old as like 50 years. They, they used to be like very small number of units with small number of connections inspired by the brain. And then 10 years ago, people figured out because the computers got so much more powerful and uh, there was so much more memory available, you can now build like the deep comes from like you have instead of one layer, hundreds of layers, and in some cases, billions of connections and they become very powerful. The connections can be learned. So this happened in AI. And then academics started using that for generating better faces, images of faces. But still, uh, the visual effects industry is still better in generating that. The great thing about visual effects is you do a good visual effect if you cannot detect that it was a visual effect. You've seen lots of movies and it was fake. Um, now what happened with this deep neural network-based face generators they were not that accessible. They were written by graduate students at universities, very hard to use, and you could debunk them really easily. Uh, I don't want to put down the groups. There's a lot of progress. But then um, just recently, actually, almost it was like in December last year, somebody posted on Reddit. It was actually uh, uh, discussed uh, a few months before but somebody posted code that can do that, a deep fake code with like a deep network. And then if you have um, some software engineering skills, you can download that code, turn it into an application, collect a bunch of examples of faces of the person that is there in the video and faces that you want to replace it by. And then you buy like a graphics card that costs less than like $1,000, like a, it's called a GPU card, and let your system run on your home computer or your laptop for sometimes several days or one day, and then it creates a deep fake. And then uh, more recently, um, like an entire community evolved out of this, and they're generating more and more techniques of deep fakes. And this goes also in parallel that neural networks usually they can do very good in detecting this is a face, this is a house, this is a car, 
sort of like one-bit decisions. Like, um, but the recent advances in neural networks is now I can generate um, an image of a face. That's something completely new that we didn't know how to do five years ago. Um, and so um, they, they generated this one thing called fake app. You don't have to have software engineers anymore. You just download it on your PC and run it. And so um, that changed the game. But it has a lot of parallels with what happened 20 years ago when Photoshop came out. So people Photoshopped photos. And at the beginning, people were believing it. And now we're sort of sensitive to it. Oh, this is a Photoshopped image, maybe. I cannot believe it. And now with the deep fakes, actually, already there is arguably a lot more awareness like, oh, this might be a deep fake. We, we don't trust videos that much anymore. So, so just on that, how, how hard is it? So you, you mentioned previously, you know, you could look at it and go, oh, okay, that's clearly not, that's mm -hmm. not real. But how difficult is it currently to detect a deep fake video? And then is it safe to assume that the forensic capability will evolve as quickly as the, the deep fake capability itself? In other words, Will our ability to find these things out as fakes always be in parallel with the generation of the fake? That's a good question. So um, most of the deep fakes that are out there are actually very easy to detect, even with the untrained eye. Um, what happens a lot is the face is flickering a little bit, the eye blinks are inconsistent, then there's all these things. When, when I speak, um, I have head motions, and the lips are like correlated to my head motions. A deep fake doesn't do that. There's also like amazing stuff like MIT, uh, Bill Freeman's lab developed something where you can enhance the color channels in the face. And then if you have a real video, you can actually detect just by the, the change of redness, what's the pulse rate of that person. A deep fake cannot do that. So this is sort of more like the trained forensics experts can use that. And then, as soon as deepfakes came out, and even before that, many years before, an entire new uh, scientific community evolved that uh, first looks at Photoshop images and comes up with techniques that can detect, oh, this, this sequence of pixels is wrong, this area of pixels is wrong, and so on. And then as soon as deepfakes came out, uh, they also started building systems that can detect if it's a deep fake, can tell you where the deep fake is. And then also another very interesting um, research direction is where it originates from. It's called provenance. So I think you can say it's a cat and mouse game or like an arms race. And um, depending to what expert you talk to, the detection algorithms are actually ahead of the fake algorithms right now. Okay. So Bobby, so in, in addition to, to those types of things, um, we, we see several companies coming up with digital solutions like digital watermarks and, and other kind of persistent metadata, embedded data uh, in these videos. Won't that solve it? Right. No. Uh, the reason why it won't automatically solve it is it depends on what kind of uptake of that sort of detection and provenance type technology we see. The, the main thing we need to be concerned about are deep fakes, or any kind of fakes, but especially deep fakes, that can propagate widely and quickly. That's, that's where it's going to interact with our cognitive biases and the filter bubbles we all live in and, and spread as misinformation and have an effect such as the senator described. 
that is primarily going to be a function of the major platforms, both old media and new, whether, whether we're talking about what the nightly news carries or what can be circulated on Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. If those platforms as gatekeepers decide to embed as, as a form of filter uh, requirements that video or imagery bears the right watermarks or the right hallmarks of a, of a provenance confirming you know, validity uh, type system, great. But there's no particular reason to think that that's going to happen immediately. I mean, there's, there are a million variables there, right? So there are a lot of different entities out there trying to develop these watermarking and other sort of validity and provenance solutions. Um, which one gets to be the winner? You know, is, is it Betamax or is it VHS? Um, there, there's going to be a lot of variability. And insofar as, let's say there's some kind of coordinated action which presents its own kind of issues, but if there were, and, and everybody who really needs to decided, you know, we're all going to settle on on this new thing that Chris has invented, and it's great, and we're, gonna, we're all going to use this. If it's cumbersome and acts as a real sort of friction point for, for users, like all of us who are just putting up all this user-generated content on popular sites, unless they all do it, and there's really no other place you'd want to be but the sources that use that, you might find it to be a bit of a pain. It sure is easier to download this other app for this other type of platform. I'm going to go, you know, MySpace comes back, and suddenly they don't have these filters, and they're really easy to use, and it's more fun and interesting what goes on there. So it could be the case that that sort of protection will be built into the platforms that are going to spread this, but I'm a little skeptical that that will happen anytime soon. Hmm. Yeah, you could imagine the emergence of, uh, and, and, and you and Daniel actually mentioned this in, in your paper, the, the emergence of, of some type of, of embedded verification and even, even kind of personal tracking, geolocation, where you've been in the past, so that, you know, you can imagine if you're of someone of, of public importance um, and, and, a, and a, one of these videos comes up, you might want to be able to demonstrably show that, no, I, I wasn't even in that building. I, I was never there. So when you when you consider those types of technical solutions, then you know particularly, what privacy concerns start to come up? Are are you concerned about that? I think that's what motivated us to write this paper. the The idea that we would worry that we would lack some accountability for where we are, um, that we might unravel our own privacy to protect ourselves from deep fakes, that we might. Uh, that we're going to see a market desire for like life logging. They exist these services, right? Our phone is essentially logging where we are all the time, right? So that we are engaging in all sorts of activities where we're often tracked and traced, right, and categorized in all sorts of ways. But the idea that we would need to do it as a matter of self-defense and that if we didn't then do it, it would suggest there's something that we're hiding something. And I think that's what, for Bobby and I, what troubled us so much is that we know there's incredibly, and we can talk about the destructive capabilities for individuals and for society, that their harm is real, immediate, it's visceral, it's palpable, it's, it's significant. There are also longer term concerns yeah. that we might unravel our own privacy in ways in the longer run is incredibly troubling um, and gives an extraordinary amount of power right, to companies and governments who have access to those, imagine those reservoirs of data, right? that I think really worry us. Talk, talk just a little bit on, because I want to come back to the, the privacy and, and the, the broader implications, but you raised a good point in terms of the, the personal implications of one of these. So if you're an individual right. citizen, for, forget a public figure, just mm -hmm. anyone in this room, uh, and this capability to build one of these videos is democratized fully, 
and all of a sudden some ex-boyfriend or yep. girlfriend generates one of these. What are some of the implications? I mean, you've written about cyberstalking. Yeah. What happens? Right. So, uh, you know, this comes up. We really all, this issue grabs our attention because what we saw were subreddits devoted to deep sex fakes, right? So putting a celebrity's head onto real pornography. And so what you're doing is exploiting someone's image in ways that make it seem like they're having sex, which of course they're not and the kind of theft of one's identity, right? You can imagine being reduced to a sex object. You never decided to do that, right? But the peril, especially for people who are not public figures, is uh, imagine the kind of damage that you do now that it's not that you shared a nude image or you allowed an ex to, to take a video, right? Which in trust and in confidence is often misused, right? And victims are already punished for having done so, even though they've done nothing wrong, right? But now that we have these apps, you can easily download the capability of it creating these kinds of harms. Now, you don't have to have ever taken that selfie that you got coerced into sending someone, or you agreed to share. Now we can literally create sex videos about anyone, and you can see it being misused in domestic abuse right, um, amongst partners. And you do see that. We, there was the subreddit that popped up about deep sex fakes. The narrative on the comments, this is what happens when you write about cyberstalking. It's kind of an ugly world, like the comments that I'm constantly reading, right? You had these comments amongst people that said, you know, I have my ex-girlfriend. I've got about 500 pictures from I can harvest from Facebook. You know, someone help me make a deep sex fake. I want to embarrass the living daylights out of her, and it's not written that nicely, right? And there were there were like so many comments where people were saying like, that so and so. I can't wait to use this technology. So there's a desire, unfortunately, right? And the damage is so profound, right? Because if, if a deep sex fake is in a search of your name, it's prominent, right? In a Google search, we know that employers, over 95% of employers, use Google as a way to figure out if we should interview someone or to hire them. It's not that they believe the person necessarily made the sex video. It's so much easier and cheaper to hire someone who doesn't come with the baggage, right? So not only is it incredibly psychologically damaging, right? Uh, you are, you're essentially and effectively put into a sex video in ways that you would never imagine you ever were, right? And it could be incredibly violent and terrifying. But now it also has an impact on your economic lives. And so, you know, that, the problem with those scenarios, folks don't lack, they lack the resources. Like to the extent there's debunking, it's almost impossible for the everyday person. And so partnerships with platforms, you know, we saw Google uh, in the summer of 2014 announce that they were gonna de-index nude photos and searches of people's names if they could show as non-consensual, what we call non-consensual pornography or revenge porn. Now, that's an incredibly important move and was at the time, right? Because what you want as a victim is not to have it searchable, right? Um, and so it doesn't solve your problem, but at least the employer, the clients, the friends don't immediately see it in a search of your name. Yeah. Well, so now I'm going to take those very real implications, pull up a little bit, particularly think about the context of national security for a moment and, and just kind of frame the question. Senator Rubio mentioned, mentioned Russia, uh, I think for good reason. Um, a, a couple of contexts, uh, pieces of context perhaps for our audience. Um, in the past, uh, the Russian government has used manipulated information, uh, falsified emails, other kinds of data to marginalize and, and constrain political opponents. Just recently, they were deliberately targeting the cell phones of NATO soldiers and deliberately feeding them 
false information as a means of directing and, and, and shaping a, uh, a battlefield. Bobby, do you think it's realistic to think that a, um, a hostile competitor like Russia or, or someone else might leverage this type of capability for its own domestic you know, kind of consumption and, and purposes, but then even into the, the broader international environment? And if so, you know, where, where are we then? So clearly, yes. Uh, as, you, as you say, Compromod and other techniques of disinformation and information warfare, you know, it's not unique to the Russians, but they're certainly past masters of it and current practitioners of it. I mean, just Im imagine, if you will, this will sound far-fetched, but imagine the President of the United States going into a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the head of Russia and no one there to take notes or to record it other than on the American side, other than the President. Things are said and everyone wonders what was said. And then, lo and behold, there's audio, hard to debunk audio that sure sounds like the president saying, don't worry about the Baltics, we will never lift a finger to defend them. Or fill in the blank with some other nightmarish, you know, betrayal of American national interest, in my opinion. The ability to go beyond the fakery that's already possible in the your eyes tell you or your ears tell you what you heard manner makes it much more powerful. So there, there are many ways to disrupt international relations in making use of this technology. There are other ways it can be made use of. Um, you know, think, so co-founder of Lawfare, um, as I think probably many people in the room will know, Lawfare is a term that are, are originates uh, with Charlie Dunlap talking about the ways in which uh, someone might make a strategic use of legal rules in, in an effort to maybe hamstring an opponent. Think about the ways that insurgents or other adversaries of the United States already do make use of misinformation to make it appear our forces or allied forces have done this or that thing. Often it's a claim about killing civilians or, or, or harm to civilian populations. Uh, and yeah, you can, you can have actors play the role, you can impersonate and so forth, but how much the better if you can use the technology of deepfakes to make more credible instances of supposed atrocities, or perhaps you'd like to inflame Israeli-Palestinian tensions, or perhaps you'd like to go domestically and inflame tensions and pick an American city where tensions between the police and, and a local community are running especially high, and let's just have that chief of police captured on video or audio saying racist things. Um, the potential for mayhem is really off the charts, and, and it's true that we can generally speaking, eventually debunk. But the truth doesn't ever quite catch up with the initial lie, if the initial lie is emotional and juicy enough. Well, and, and it's important to think about this outside of the immediate context of our own, of like kind of what happens within our borders. You could imagine how, um, again, we'll use Russia because it's a, it's a realistic and an excellent foil. But you could imagine how they might use that in developing regions to shape the political situations there. And where it, it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't land on us specifically geographically, but it then becomes a political situation that we are now engaging that, that may significantly influence a, a decision as to what type of support or uh, aid or deployment uh, might, uh, might be forthcoming in the wake of that. So we're talking about a capability uh, in an age of media that I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that could, could fundamentally shape the environment in which we're doing policy both domestic and, and foreign policy. Danielle, anything to add to that? It just makes me think of this line that uh, we have in the paper, that like we have both concerns about trust decay and truth decay all together, right? That geopolitical nightmare of a lack of trust with each other, within, with countries, right? And then also interpersonally, culturally. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. 
And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So I think Senator Rubio started to hint at this, but he didn't have a, an opportunity to kind of pull the string. Is there, are there any accompanying challenges with greater awareness? So as, as we educate, as we have this conversation, are we simultaneously kind of raising a challenge alongside that? Yeah, so the, the more successful we are at getting people to be aware of the nature of this problem and to cultivate their skepticism about audio and video, the more space we're creating for something we call, in the paper we call this the liar's dividend. I can't decide if I really like that <laughs> term, but it kind of captures it. There's the mirror image situation where the video is real, the audio is real. It does expose something wrong or embarrassing about some public figure, and that person has the shamelessness to deny it. This already happens, but how much more room is there to persuasively deny video and audio evidence when people have been pounded with the message by us? Uh, beware of deep fakes. Imagery can be manipulated. Video can be manipulated. So the cry of fake news becomes the cry of deep fake news and is much more resonant because of success in getting people to be on guard. All right, so I'm just, we're going to push into this just a little bit more and then we'll release. Right? But okay, I, let's just get dystopian. Yeah. <laughs> All right. How bad could this really get? as you two have thought about this together. Okay, so that, that I think you've got two sides, almost Janice-faced coin, where that seem to be totally opposite, but I think can exist together, right? On the one hand, nothing is believable, right? We've got the liar's dividend, which, by the way, I vote for keeping it because it was Bobby's idea, and I really like it, right. though he's incredibly humble and doesn't, so maybe we can have a little <laughs> poll later. But... Um, where nothing is believable, everything, right? That, that is, we all kind of withdraw into our filter bubbles. And so we all get to say, oh, nah, nah, nah. You know, like, there are no truths. And we've really done incredible destruction culturally and politically to each other, right? And at the same time, when nothing is believable politically, for individuals, deep sex fakes and the like are incredibly damaging. Because that's the kind of thing we say, oh, I believe that. Because it's going to often reaffirm a lot of biases we have, like gender stereotypes, right? For, for a woman, you see a deep sex fake, oh, you know, uh, she's incredibly available, so I'm not going to hire her, right? So while at the same time for individuals, it's totally believable and worth being incredibly costly, right? Um, at the same time, culturally and politically, we lose faith. In, in our public discourse, right? And, and here we are. And I think, to me, that's the nightmare scenario. And then, let's add in our, what drove us to write this paper, which is the immutable sort of audit trail that we create, right? For you yeah. want to take that over? Yeah, sure. If, as you said earlier, Danielle, if, 
it won't be for everybody trying to purchase some service from a third party who can be sort of a, a trusted repository of evidence, immutable audit logs that confirm, hey, hey let's throw in the word blockchain, right, just because, uh, <laughs> some kind of reliably trustworthy log of exactly where you were, and, and if you want to go full throttle with it, video and audio of what was going on. You've got some some token on your on your jacket that's just recording everything. And uh, maybe only a few people who are running for office or otherwise in especially sensitive positions, like a chief of police, maybe only they go in for it. But then along come some employers that really want, during work hours, they want their employees to wear this, because Lord knows what their employees might otherwise get up to. And you do run the risk of, of accelerating a surveillance trend and sort of an, an omni recording of everything trend that is pretty disturbing and it's not necessarily a world that we'd be accustomed to or wanting to live in. Right, and so imagine if in a world in which we don't trust anything, who gets to define what's true are the basically totalitarian leaders, right, authoritarians. And if we've created a sort of life log for ourselves, imagine the way in which we can be controlled. So maybe that's as dystopian as we get. Yeah, no, that's pretty disturbing. Right? Yeah, that's pretty, it's pretty ugly. And right? also, yeah. the robots are in charge. That's right. That's right. And blockchain uh, saves us all. Just kidding, because that's, that's every conference I go right. to. Right. Okay, so Chris, bail us out, man. Yeah, like, save us. what? That's that's the worst, right? That's the worst case yeah. scenario, and I, I I could pile on, but there's no need to. Yeah. How is this technology likely to present itself here in the near to term? What's the most likely next evolution of this as we go forward? So I said that before, like the current deep fakes are easy to debunk. And uh, what happens next is to fix certain shortcomings of the deep fakes. Uh, people are working on making things more compatible that were not compatible, like head motions are in sync with what they're saying and so on. But um, when I talk, we talk, we engage with the community of researchers and other platforms. There is quite some optimism out there. And I don't want to go into theory in front of this uh, audience, but there's a lot of discussion, like this pitting or this, this um, arms race, like generators here, detectors here, detector gets better, generator gets better, detector gets better. There is actually, there are some proofs out there that the detector will always win. That's what some people say. And then another Was thing... Was that true with Photoshop? You know, you, you had us go back there right. 20 years. So yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, there's, there's some great work out there by UC Berkeley, by Alyosha Efros' group, uh, that, um, like, with the deep fakes, some of the techniques need to know the software that created it. And then it's sort of more like an antivirus program scenario that, okay, as soon as the new deepfakes come up, then, then you download it automatically to your detector. There are actually very ambitious people, and, and I believe it's possible at some point that you can have a general deepfake detector um, where you don't need to know what's coming next. And so Alyosha Efforts' group actually built a system for Photoshopped images that, like, Neural networks are usually trained, these are examples of fake, these are examples of real, and you collect a lot of fakes and you look, collect a lot of reals, and then if you have a, like a, a database of fakes, and then a new fake comes out that's not part of that database, you might have a hard time detecting it, but his system, his group system was trained only on real images. Mm -hmm. And then 
if there's something coming up that doesn't belong to the space of the real images, it detects it, and it works pretty well. Uh, so uh, there are Photoshop detectors out there. It's called splice detection, where you see the area and all that. Another thing uh, that I want to mention is, uh, and Senator Rubio started out well. There was propaganda. There's rumors. Uh, and the, all the uh, general discussion about fake news, to debunk them, um, you need uh, fact checkers, and they might have bias, and people might not believe it. But if we actually keep going with that speed in the research for detectors, and we come up with the right interfaces, it's also like we talk to psychologists and social scientists how to debunk it. Um, it's a more objective way to debunk it. Like, this pixel is false because of this reason, and here's the original video. And a lot of journalism already use that. Like, if they, they actually use our platform, um, you have a, you have an image and you don't know where it comes from. You go to images.google.com, drag the image in. It's a reverse image search, and the entire search results comes up. Oh. That image also appeared here, here, here. A slightly modified image appears here. And it's a standard practice already. And that's, that's like a very convincing way to, to convince the general public very fast this is objectively false. So, so the, the good news is, is from a forensic standpoint, at least right now, there's reason to have some optimism about our capacity to say mm -hmm. no definitively. Mm -hmm. Not good. So, in a court of law, or or perhaps if we're and things are really working well, a journalist before they publish on something, mm -hmm. they run it through that system. Unfortunately, when we talk in the context of just general user content, user generated content, I think it was Mark Twain. You know, the the, uh, the a lie is around the world by the time the truth gets its boots yeah. on. Or Churchill knows that. Churchill, maybe sounds better. Yeah. So. <laughs> I've heard so it that both simultaneously ways. cool idea, and then also <laughs> right, right. gave yourself serious historical chops. So, exactly. Yeah, love it. Well, so I guess I guess so. One of the challenges becomes is, in one sense, like yes, in in perhaps the case of public figures and, and that kind of thing. But even then, I think we all understand uh, that you know rumors persist regardless of of, of what's been demonstrated um, to be to be false. Um, so and in a yeah. Google search, there isn't a right to reply. Right. So. If there is a deep sex fake mm -hmm. or whatever it may be, there isn't a right to have a response, at least not as we conceive it now, so that for the, especially for the individual, sure. it, it's still incredibly harmful, right? Well, we, we have terms of use in place. Uh, if it's like a malicious, content, uh, malicious con uh, intent or, or other things, so it right. can be tagged and we can, uh, but it's a policy question. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Get and too much into that. I'm a researcher. Yeah. But they're, no, no, they're, but uh, you have to help create the policy. The community right? is yeah. is thinking about it, how yeah. to respond faster. And, right. um, you almost like get a first bite, mm -hmm. right? And that first bite, then once we figure out it's a deep fake, we could have a hash database where you match it and you filter going forward like we do for child pornography. You do get your first shot, though, right? Uh, unless you said so well. A journalist decides not to publish it because we've determined before the fact. Yeah, which we hope that would happen at least right. sometime. Uh, so uh, maybe the last question before we turn to some some Q and A from the audience. But uh, we've got a good number of folks here from the Hill. So an obvious question: Why don't we just make these illegal? Won't that fix it? 
define the category. Yeah. <laughs> um, so digital manipulation can't be the sufficient condition to uh, to create the category because, of course, we manipulate video to improve the quality of images or to make pictures look cooler or make sound a little clearer. There's all, there's all sorts of ways in which you have to allow for some amount of manipulation. So that won't be enough. Could you could you fix it with intent, uh, intent to harm through digital manipulation? I guess we kind of have a lot of laws already uh, for that sort of thing, defamation among other deals. So you could struggle to define the category if you want to just criminalize deep fakes as a thing or, or attach civil liability to it or, or take regulatory action as to it. The definitional challenge is huge. Now, that's not the only way you could address it through leveraging legal means. And in the paper, which, by the way, if you, if you want to actually read the paper, the quickest and easiest way, uh, Google uh, Chesney Citroen Deepfakes SSRN. That's the acronym for the website that hosts the article currently. You'll find it that way. Uh, but Daniel, maybe you could talk about uh, the, the possibility of tweaking Section 230 mm -hmm. in a way that could place more pressure on platforms to police for this sort of thing. Right. So, so Section 230, how many people know what we're talking about? Okay, there are like five lines. of you, I know, lines. and my co-author, Quinta Jurassic in the, in the audience. I, I won't call on you, I promise, Quinta. Um, but uh, we have something called the Communications Decency Act. Uh, it's a law passed in 1996, um, which was really about how to rid the internet of porn, which now seems like an insane proposition, right? And much of that law is struck down, sorry, uh, on constitutional grounds. Um, but what remains is a section that was designed to encourage self-monitoring because lawmakers knew they couldn't possibly rid the internet of, and they include this in the law, stalking, harassment, all sorts of criminal activity, plus a completely legal speech, which is just offensive. They wanted to encourage self-regulation. And so what, and, and there were early cases, so a case from Long Island, trial court, found that Prodigy was filtering for dirty words and that it didn't catch defamation in a case. Um, and because Prodigy had done some editing, they were found as a publisher and then strictly liable for defamation. And so what that case suggested to platforms, early platforms, AOL and Prodigy, they shouldn't do any filtering, right? Because if they did anything, they would be publishers. And so in light of that, then representatives, uh, Ron Wyden and Chris Cox, drafted Section 230 which says that if you're if you don't if you catch too much or too little in your filtering and monitoring you're not going to be responsible for user generated content um, so when you're overly aggressive and you monitor you have to have good faith basis but the part of the law that talks about when you don't catch enough is is written in such a way it says um, an, an interactive computer service provider won't be treated as a publisher or a speaker for someone else's content itself isn't limited to the good actor, the good Samaritan who self-monitors. So that's why revenge pornographers get to say, I'm immune from liability. I know I solicited nude photos uh, of, of women who never said, yes, you can post this, right? But I enjoy immunity from liability because the law says that I'm not going to be considered a publisher or a speaker for someone else's content. And courts have construed that provision really broadly, right? And so what it leads to is lots of great things about the internet, right? We've got what I think are kind of virtuous actors like Twitter and Facebook and Google who do their best in certain circumstances to address spam and copyright violations and non-consensual pornography, threats, cyber stalking, right? 
But you've got a lot of actors who, in fact, encourage and solicit illegality. And they get to be immune from liability. So what we talk about in our paper is the possibility that the, the immunity shouldn't be unconditional. That there should be some, you get the immunity, so we don't want to tear down the immunity, right? Keep the immunity, but just premise it on you've engaged in reasonable practices and responses to illegality on your platform, right? So if you had a site whose sole reason for being was deep sex fakes, then, and they're told, well, they know because they're soliciting it, do they deserve the immunity from liability? Absolutely not, right, in, in our view. Uh, it's a controversial position, but it's actually quite modest, right? Because we just had, and this is Quint and I have just been writing about, we just passed an exception to Section 230, which I have to say, when you told me 10 years ago I started writing about Section 230, we would ever come to any agreement about changing Section 230, I would have said, you're joking me, it'll never happen. But it recently did. Congress recently got its complete act together and passed what is a, not as a terrible law. Uh, and it's Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act, which is both too narrow and too broad. Right? And it's going to have platforms sit on their hands because it says we criminalize platforms that knowingly facilitate sex trafficking. Right? So knowingly facilitate, what does that mean? That could include, you know, you engage in filtering. So that worries me, and I think that was a bad move. And so Bobby and I suggest a, a I think, more modest suggestion, but one that also I really liked uh, the, we have some, do you want to talk about the ways in which we're going to curtail it? So, or no, do you not want us to do 230? Oh, I would love for you to keep going. Okay. We just are stuck on time, and I wanted okay. to have a, a little bit of public um, Q&A real quick. But it's also helpful context for, for those who are new to this issue to understand that from the tech community standpoint, so this is a, this is a deep, worthwhile conversation. But from the from the tech community's uh, perspective, there is there is actually surprising unanimity amongst uh, these these platforms and, and these these technology companies, and they they simply articulate, look, we're we're sympathetic and empathetic to all of the challenges that you're trying to address. However, this immunity, this is their argument, this immunity is what has given rise to a free and open internet that we enjoy. And if 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 we constrain Section 230 further, if we do some type of carve out. Uh, you're going to incentivize us to actually be more aggressive in our censorship because we're going to be seeking to immunize ourselves from legal jeopardy. Now, I think there's all kinds of strings on that conversation that are worth pulling, and maybe we'll do a separate, you know, uh, event on that. But right now, I want to keep us scared about deep fakes. But that's helpful, and I highly recommend downloading this paper. Bobby told you where you can get it. Uh, just search their names in deep fakes. Uh, it's worth it. Now, I think we've got uh, a little bit of time for maybe two or possibly three uh, questions from the audience. Can we go here? So Game of Thrones does deep fakes, right? Um, <laughs> they, they film 10 different endings, and only HBO knows which one is authentic. You live in a world in which uh, generation is democratic and detection is concentrated. Uh, in that type of world, is it that bad? In other words, if detection is concentrated in media outlets, doesn't that give them a dimension along which to seize a mantle of credibility uh, relative to other organizations or entities or platforms that are incapable of verifying information? Not only does that cut down on 
the deep fake problem, it seems to minimize the liar's dividend. And it also, by the way, describes a world that maybe isn't that bad where traditional media institutions relative to more, you know, ma and pop populist outfits regain a bit of control over the accuracy of sourcing and that projects into a community that treats it that way. I'll, I'll just say briefly that, first of all, I was excited when you brought up Game of Thrones, and I thought you were just going to ask about that in general. <laughs> a little disappointed with where that question went, um, but that's okay. Uh, so the market currently, the information marketplace for news in particular, doesn't give me as much hope as I would like to believe that the larger swath of the market wants to see competition on accuracy and truth and objectivity. That said, uh, certainly the idea behind sort of the stuff Steve Brill is working on and others, sort of the rotten tomatoes for the validity of news, that kind of measure. Um, I love seeing that. I sure hope it takes off and it become, if it becomes the case that some degree of curation on, on validity of the information can be brought back into the information space, that'd be great. Um, I'm a little worried that there's just a lot of people who aren't really interested in that and or really don't buy that there is objectivity and don't believe that the entities that would then end up being the highest scoring ones really are objective. That there's, uh, it's all spin, it's all, it's all, you say that's truth, that's your truth, I've got mine. And that assumes time. A lot of this is so time contingent. So if it's the night for election, an election, there's too little time and let's say it goes viral and it's not ABC, NBC, CBS, right? It is just viral on Twitter and so many different platforms and it can change an election, right? Same with the intentional falsehood that is intended to manipulate that causes a riot, right? It's a time sensitivity question, right? You're presuming a world in which there's context for counter speech and checks. So if we have a brief question real quick. Uh, yeah, Taylor Barkley at Charles Koch Institute. Um, the discussion seems to have centered on kind of like the pre-big event, maybe some deep fake video happens night before election, every, it goes viral, situation happens, but then, you know, the analysis a week later, it's like, whoa, this is really false. What about the, what will culture look like after that, when it is broadly believed and shown to be the case that, oh, there's this technology out there, this scenario can happen, what does culture look like kind of after the first big deep fake effective event. So my biggest fear about all this is that when there is a really big sort of the crossing that Rubicon when it happens and then everyone has the two week later realization like, oh man, look what, look what's going on. That's what's going to really widen the playing field for those who would deny the truth when confronted with embarrassing video and audio and enable them to sort of say, oh no, you've heard, you heard about this. This, this is like that other thing. Wasn't me. That's the liar's dividend. That's right. a large dividend. Totally. Right. Yes. Well, friends, I, I, I can't allow us to, to go over any further. Uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for coming to Heritage. And uh, please join me in thanking our guests. Thanks for doing this. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the Heritage Foundation for letting Lawfare broadcast the event. If you haven't yet, please share this podcast on Facebook and Twitter and give us a rating and review wherever you found us. This podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>